Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Tony Award winner Len Cariou, who's starring in a one-man show, Broadway and the Bard, An Evening of Shakespeare and Song. Len Cariou has been the original Sweeney Todd in Sweeney Todd, Demon Barber of Fleet Street, also starred opposite Lauren Bacall in Applause, and was the original lawyer Eggerman in uh, Stephen Sondheim's A Little Night Music, has something like 80-plus credits on IMDb. Past eight years has been on the TV show Blue Bloods on CBS, he spent a season as a villain on Damages, starred in Brotherhood, was a regular on Murder, She Wrote, opposite his Sweeney Todd co-star, Angela Lansbury. Also was the villainous Monsignor in the Oscar-winning film, Spotlight. Before we talk about your career, let's talk about this particular show. Now, you said before we went on the air that it had been seven, eight years since you'd done Shakespeare, but you started with a lot of Shakespeare way back when. Yeah, I started in the early 60s. I'm from Canada originally. I was lucky enough to uh, be a member of the Stratford Shakespeare Festival in Stratford, Ontario, which is a world-renowned festival. And I started there in 1960 and went back and forth between... Stratford, Ontario, and Winnipeg, Manitoba for like the first seven or eight years of my career. After I'd done my first year at Stratford, I realized that the real challenge for an actor had to be the classics. So I decided to uh, to make that my priority. And my mentor, whose name was John Hirsch, who had engineered my getting into the Stratford company, said, okay, you're taking the high road if you're going to do Shakespeare, he said, because there's not many places that you're going to be able to do it in North America. But you make me a promise that you don't give up the musical because, he said, not many actors can do what you can do. The first time I met John Hirsch, I was uh, in Winnipeg. We had an outdoor theater called Rainbow Stage and still exists. It's now a geodesic dome, but it, then it had no dome on it at all. And it was in a park in Kildonan Park. If it got cloudy at night, not many people showed up because they thought they were going to get rained on. But it was great fun. At the end of that first meeting with John, he invited me to be Ensign Pulver in Mr. Roberts, which was the first play that I did that fall. And once I had done the play, I was stuck. I went, oh my God, this is obviously what i meant to do, and I must make sure that I do this the rest of my life. The Manitoba Theater Center, which you created, mm-hmm. was that around that time too? That happened that year when I did Ernst Pulver. That was the first year of the Manitoba Theater Center. Did you do any musicals for them? Yes. What did you do? The Boyfriend, Irma LaDuce. There were a couple of others. 
after the Manitoba Theater Center, you did go on to the Guthrie, and you were doing a lot of Shakespeare there. Yes. As well as um, when you had done it at Stratford. You knew you were great at comedy and at musicals. Were you drawn separately to Shakespeare? I mean, how yes, did that it was. I was in all the plays because I was as cast in all the plays, so I was never really had any time to myself, except you know on scenes that I wasn't in, which were very few. So I decided that I would just go to every rehearsal and educate myself because I really didn't know what I would play as in Shakespeare except for the obvious ones, and they weren't any of the plays that we were doing that year. You know, I was in my early 20s, so I just went and realized by watching all these wonderful actors what the challenge was as far as Shakespeare was concerned. And so I said, well, that's what I really want to do and made that decision and told John Hirsch that when I got home. That fall, I said, I want to do this, and that's when he gave me that advice. Obviously, you took the advice, and you continued to do classics and Shakespeare over the mm. years. So how did Broadway and the Bard come about? For the evening's sake, I say my career began as Henry V, and six months later, I was in a musical called Applause, and I had this idea that I should put together an evening of Shakespeare and song. So that's when the idea happened. Actually, it happened a little earlier. But. You had the idea, but you weren't Len Carey at the time, so you couldn't put it into effect. Well, I was, actually, and I could have, I guess. But I just, you know, I just kept doing other work, and so it, it wasn't my top priority. But it was always there in the back of my head, and, and about six or eight years ago, I had been missing singing, and so I decided that I wanted to do a cabaret because I'd started really in, in the nightclub business back in Winnipeg in the mid-50s. I found myself Mark Janis, who is my musical director and accompanist, and he's my co-actor with me. He's on stage with me playing the piano. I told him I had this idea, and I told him that I'd had it, you know, when I did applause, and he said, well, that was quite a while ago, and I said, yeah, you're right. Uh, and I said, I think I want to do it. In 1968, before Henry V, I was in Chicago doing Othello with James Earl Jones at the Goodman Theater School. And there was a bar that I used to frequent after each performance. And the piano player there, his signature sign-off was to play Brubeck's Take Five. And I had been there for a couple of weeks, and I finally went up to him and I said, how about you play Brubeck and I do Iago? And you accompany me, and I'll just do one of the soliloquies, or two of the soliloquies from uh, Othello. And he went, yeah, man, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do it. And we did it one night, and the place went nuts. They really loved it. And that's when I knew it would work. And then I got busy, and I was doing other things. And uh, the career took over, and then I, I realized after about 10 years ago, it came back into my head, and I hadn't been singing, and I decided that I wanted to go back to my voice teacher, and I did. Just exercised the voice and got it back into shape, and then decided that I, that I might try the cabaret. He was my accompanist, Mark was, 
And then I said to him one day, I told him about this idea that I'd had all of those, all of those many years ago, and he said, really interesting. And I said, you know, I'd like to do a soliloquy, for instance, and, uh, and have a classical piece played as the background. And he started playing Bach. And I said, yeah, that's absolutely what I'm saying. It was a Bach partita. It's part of the evening of Broadway and right. the Bard now. Once I'd picked the soliloquies that I wanted to do, I realized that I didn't think it'd work in a cabaret setting. So I said, maybe it's got to be a theater piece. I then went looking for a director. And Barry Kleinbord, who directs Broadway and the Bard, is a composer in his own right and an absolute encyclopedia of musical comedy. And... Uh, I said, would you be interested in doing this? And I gave him an example, and he said, oh, yeah, I think I would. And, and so he was a huge help in choosing the music because I didn't have enough encyclopedic knowledge of the stuff. I was looking at some of the songs. There are songs from the song from Kiss Me, Kate, Brush Up Your Shakespeare. Mm. Of course, something from Boys from Syracuse. But I was looking, and most of the show's musicals from Shakespeare other than Kiss Me Kate and Boys from Syracuse, putting aside West Side Story mm. for a second, or Lion King, which don't quite qualify, most of them were really bad rock musicals. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw that you picked a song from Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, yep. If I Ruled the World from Pickwick, which I guess comes after Richard III or... Richard II. Or Richard II. And also a couple of Gershwins in there, too. Yep. I wanted Gershwin, I wanted Bernstein, I wanted Sondheim, I wanted Rogers and Hart, I wanted Lerner and Lowe, and we got them all in, pretty much. It ends up we have about 16 or 17 little one-act plays. How hard was it for you to put together the skeleton that ties it all together? It was not hard at all. It was, I mean, it was time-consuming, but it was great fun to do to discover the songs that, that Barry would come up with. I didn't have all of the soliloquies picked out when we began. As we went on, I then went, okay, we're doing this finally. So I had to go back and, and look at, uh, at the whole canon, the Shakespeare canon, and, and pick out the roles that I had played. And for the most part, there were roles that I played. I've been in a production of every Shakespeare play that we do, but maybe not as that character on one or two occasions. Of all of those roles, which one did you find the hardest and which one did you find the most fun to do? Well, I think the hardest, obviously, was Lear. It's a mother of a piece. I mean, I think it's Shakespeare's best play, certainly from an acting company's point of view. There are just 14 or 15 really great roles in it. And the most fun, I think, was Petruchio in Taming of the Shrew. Did you ever play that character? Well, it's two characters, but Petruchio and the actor in Kiss Me, Kate? No, I never did Kiss Me, Kate. Too bad. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been fun. Yeah. Len you one more question about the show. Does the show change at all? Is it all scripted then? Yep. Hasn't changed one iota. Do you like ad lib, or would you stay away from that? The nature of the show just doesn't doesn't lead to that, uh, except that you know it's the fourth wall is down in this. I'm talking directly to the audience. It's really my 
It's really a history of my career in a sense. So, for instance, uh, in Chicago last week, it was uh, Charles Strauss's 90th birthday. One of the first songs I sing is from Applause. And I said, by the way, it was today is Charles Strauss's 90th birthday. That much I can do. And then you go into the song. Yeah, and then, you know, and, and then continue on. But uh, so that's what is as ad lib as it gets. Len Carey, what got you involved in theater to begin with? You were in high school. Yeah, I've always been a singer. I sang in a trio and a quartet. Finally, I decided that I would do it on my own. And I did some nightclub work, which is what we called it in those days. We didn't call it cabaret. We called it nightclubs. And John Hirsch and Tom Hendry were founding the Mantle Theater Center. Tom Hendry was a friend of my sister's. And I said that I wanted to be a part of the Rainbow Stage. And so she went to her friend, his wife, Tom Hendry's wife, and said, can you get Len an audition? And he did. And John hired me. That was the very, very beginning. And then we did Mr. Roberts, and it was in February that Michael Langham, who was the artistic director at Stratford, sent me a telegram asking me if I would be interested in coming to join the company as cast. And I, of course, leapt at the chance because it was our national theater. I knew I wanted to be involved somehow. I didn't know what I'd play in Shakespeare, but I wanted to be involved. Were they giving you leading roles once you got there? Oh, no. No, no just secondary. Oh, yeah. You have to earn your stripes. There's something in your show that was in a, a review that someone said to you, because you wanted to play Macbeth, no Scottish play for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, what was that about? When I was doing night music in New York, a little night music, I was also the associate artistic director of the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis. Michael Langham, who was the artistic director, And I had a plan that after I'd been in night music for a year, I would come back to do Macbeth. And then he changed his mind and changed the play from Macbeth to King Lear. I was devastated by that. But he sat me down. He said, no Scottish play for you, dear boy. You'll play Lear. Time you started doing those character parts. Well, the joke was I was 35 years old. But, you know. If you play those kind of roles, it changes your life, and it certainly changed mine. Finally, from the Guthrie, you took House of Atreus, and that was your first time on Broadway. Yes. Second time was Henry V. So you had the lead by then. They'd already Well, yeah. Well, I had the lead in House of Atreus, too. By that time, this was 1968. Remember, I started in the 60s, so by 68, I was playing the leading roles and leading the company. I played Orestes in the House of Atreus, and we took that and Arturo Uya on tour. We came to New York at the Billy Rose Theater, and then we went from the Billy Rose to L.A. And then I came back and was invited to do Henry V at Stratford, Connecticut, which I did. And then I auditioned three times for applause. And then at the end of that season, we transferred Henry V to New York for six weeks. An applause. How was it working with uh, Lauren Bacall? It was an experience. It was her first leading role, and it was in a musical. She had been a bit of a hoofer when she was growing up, but she hadn't done any of that, and she'd been a movie star 
for most of her adult life, and that was where her fame was. And that sexy voice of hers didn't have a lot of elasticity in it to be able to sing that that well. But they tailored the piece for her. I had come off doing Henry V, so I was, you know, I was kind of flying pretty high. And of course, applause is based on All About Eve, the, the film All About Eve. So there's a really good, fun story there. And, and so we took it out of town to work on it, as Broadway shows are wont to do. And we worked on it, and I realized that she was a little shaky. She was a little scared because the responsibility of having Lauren Bacall in applause above the title is a, a pretty hefty one. So she was a little trepidatious about it. And, uh, you know, she was aware that she wasn't a great singer. And she was, you know, she wasn't a great dancer either. But she did dance and she did sing and she's a good actress. And so she just needed somebody to say, hey, you're doing swell. Don't, you're, you're great. Don't. And we had that relationship. And we became very, very close. We became lovers, in fact, during the run of, of the show. And so that was a shall I say, a bonus. Also on that, of course, you were the experienced stage actor, and yeah. she, she'd she been in Hollywood. So that's, yeah. as you know now, there's a real difference between acting in <laughs> front of a camera and a stage. Yeah, there is. How'd you get the role for Little Night Music? Well, it came about originally because when I did applause, I did a gypsy run-through of applause, which is when they invite all people from shows to come in an afternoon and all the gypsies come to see your show just as you're ready to go to wherever you're going to go, to Boston or wherever. We were going to Detroit, first to Baltimore. This was my first gypsy run-through, if you will. I didn't even know what it was. But it's you just, you're just you out there on the stage with a working light and a piano and that's all you've got. And people will, you know, and a few props. And uh, you do a run-through up for the gypsies. We were in the Schubert Theater in, you know, a thousand seats. Well, they were all full. And at the end, everybody comes up onto the stage and congratulates you. And, and I was the new kid on the block. People were coming up and congratulating me. And um, my director, Ron Fields, came over to me and said to me, what did Hal say? And I said, Hal who? And he said, oh, come on. <laughs> Hal Prince, you asshole. And I said... Well, I don't know Hal Prince. I don't know who he is. I've never met him. Where? Who is he? The guy with the glasses on top of his head. And I said, oh, well, you really want to know what he said? He said, you're one of the best leading men I've seen in a long time. I'd like to work with you one day. I thought, well, that's really nice. And, you know, from then on, obviously, I became a little more familiar with that scene. And when we came back into town and opened, we, we were a big hit. And uh, so then you get to know these people. You get to meet them all socially. I thought, well, that's really nice what he said, but, you know, I'm sure you said that to more than one person. But uh, three years later, he sent me the script when I was at the Guthrie. I was doing um, Oedipus, and we had just gone into rehearsal, and we were going to open in the fall and be the fall entrance into the repertoire. And he sent me the script, just the script. There were no lyrics in it. He's, the script was by Hugh Wheeler. Uh, but it read like an ennui play. It was really a well-written play. And uh, I thought, boy, that's really a good story. 
and it was based on Smiles of a Summer Night, right, yeah. Bergman's film. So then he said, can you come to audition for Stephen Sondheim? And I wasn't going to pass that up. And he said, we want you to look at the role of Carl Magnus. And I read the script, and I thought, well, I don't want to play Carl Magnus. I've played Carl Magnus seven different ways to Sunday. I don't need to play him anymore. Uh, I, I don't know that if push had come to shove of, of what I would have done. But anyway, I said, but I'm not going to pass up the opportunity to sing for Sondheim. So I went. When I got there, I auditioned, and, and Hal said, thanks very much. He said, we now have a new script with some lyrics in it, and take it home and read it, and we'll talk tomorrow. And so I did, and he called me, and he said, have you read it? And I said, yeah. I said, and the lyrics are extraordinary. I said, the opening lyric, uh, the opening song that Frederick sings is just extraordinary stuff. He's a lawyer. So his opening song is, the lyric is, Now as the sweet imbecilities tumble so lavishly onto her lap, now there are two possibilities. A, I could ravish her. B, I could nap. And I laughed out loud when I read that. I thought, my God. And it got... Ten times better than that as it went on. Anyway, I said, yes. And I said, and then the opening one, Frederick singing that song, I said, that's just genius. And he said, yeah, well, that's the role we want you to play. Oh, I thought, oh, what? And, you know, I was, I was 33, I think, at the time. And I said, it says in the script he's, you know, in his mid-40s here. I said, you know, or close to 50. And he said, that's a period piece. Nobody will even question it. So that's how that came about. Was Sondheim changing the lyrics, moving things around, or was it pretty much set in stone by the time you began doing that? There's a good story there, actually. We were in uh, rehearsal. I had been told that I was going to have the 11th hour song in the show, and I was pretty excited about that. And Stephen hadn't written it yet. And we got into rehearsal, and we went rehearsed for almost a month. And he still hadn't written the song, so it came up finally. And, you know, as you work on these things, things change. It evolves. Finally, there was nothing else left to rehearse except this scene between Desiree and, and Frederick. And I said, you know, I don't think Frederick would say this now because of what the changes that we've made. And Glynis said, oh, I don't think I'd do this. And Hugh Wheeler, who was sitting there, and the, the book writer, said, okay, what do you think would go on? And we tossed some things out to him. And he said, okay, you guys go away and have lunch, and I'll write the scene. I'll write up a scene, and we'll come back and work it. So we did that. And uh, the scene was pretty good. We made a few few changes right as we were doing it and said, okay, let's call Steve. And I said, can I call him? Because it was my song, right? And I, said, so, and I called him, and I said, Steve, it's Len Cario. I said, we've been working on that scene, and we've changed it quite a bit. Can you come down and hear the scene? Hugh's rewritten it. And he said, okay. So he jumped in a cab and came down. So half an hour later, he was there and walked in, and we played the scene for him. And he said, hmm, interesting. And he got up and left. And we all kind of went, 
and Halperin said, well, that's Steve, sorry, that's him. I don't know what that means, but we'll see. So two or three days later, he comes in, and the entire company is there now, and we're all standing around, and I'm eager beaver standing there, and he looks at me, and he said, sorry, Len. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you don't sing this song anymore. She does. And he began to play Send in the Clowns. So that well, was meant to be my song. A few years later, you did the film. There were parts of it that I liked, particularly the cutting and the way they did A Weekend in the Weekend Country. in the Country, yeah. That worked really well. What was the problem? Was it the fact that, that Liz Taylor was miscast? I don't know that she was miscast. I think they wanted um, him to remake Smiles of the Summer Night with music. They didn't want him, you know, and it was his second film, I think, Hal's, I mean. And I was an unknown, uh, film-wise. And she had, you know, had, had had the second divorce from Richard. So Hollywood really wasn't on her side. You know, and a combination of a lot of things just made it not popular. Did you like what came out then? Pretty much, yeah. I think it's better than anybody. I don't think they gave it a, a fair shot. I think everybody who saw it was, well, what's Elizabeth Taylor doing playing Desiree? Armfeld, and because she can't sing, we know that. And, uh, you know, the Diana Rigg was pretty much known through television, and she was in the film. And uh, Lawrence Guitard, who had been in the show with me on Broadway, repeating Carl Magnus, was unknown. Leslie Ann Down was pretty much unknown, and so on down the line. And I just think that they wanted him to make something other than what he did. And that's why they dumped it. It barely got a release. Yeah. A few years later, along comes Sweeney Todd. Did Hal Prince then approach you and say, you want to play Sweeney? I was in Canada. I became the artistic director of the Manitoba Theatre Centre. The only out I had in my contract with Manitoba Theatre Centre was if... I got an offer to do a Broadway show. I had chosen Company as the musical that we were going to do for our season. And I called Mr. Prince and I said, would you mind sending me a copy of your stage manager's prompt script? And uh, he said, oh, yeah, sure, okay. And he said, oh, and by the way, Stephen's written a musical for you. It's called Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street. I said, by the way? And he said, yeah. He said, we have a book. Hugh's doing the book. Hugh Wheeler was again doing the book. And he said, so I'll send it along to you and you can read it. No lyrics, but uh, you'll, you'll see what it is. And so that was sent to me. And I, I was pretty anxious, obviously, when it arrived. And I opened it and I went, my God, what is this? And I was in rehearsal for uh, for Equus at the time. Uh, and I was playing Dysart. And so I didn't really look at it. And I said, well, I'm gonna, I'll take it home on, on the weekend on my day off and I'll really read it and give it my undivided attention. So I did that and, and, and then thought, wow, I don't know, you know, if he writes a really uh, romantic score, it might work. Well... He did more than that. <laughs> he wrote a piece of genius work, I think. Do you remember your initial feeling when you saw the lyrics to Have a Little Priest? Oh, yeah. I was uh, going to miss the first week of rehearsal. What you do with 
the conductor and the principals are known. And just just that in Broadway, that's kind of a tradition of Broadway. I had been contracted to do a film in Alberta. I couldn't get a stop date. They wouldn't give me a stop date. The last week of the film was the first week of Sweeney. So I said to Hal, do you think Stephen would give me the music that he's written so that I don't, you know, I'm not a week behind when I come home. And he said, yeah, okay. He invited me to, to his home. We were in the room where the piano was, the, the composing room, if you will. Floor to ceiling, every conceivable composer that you could think of. From floor to ceiling, alphabetically. And he said, do you know the Catholic Mass for the Dead? And I said, yeah, Steve. I said, I was raised a Catholic, and uh, I'm Irish, French, you know, I'm, and it's D-A-Z-R-A, D-A-Z-R-A. And he said, right. And he said, listen to this, and he played on the piano. Ba-dum, 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 ba-dum. And he looked at me, and I said, what does that mean? He said, that's D-A-Z-R-A backwards. And then he said, attend the tale of Sweeney Todd. And I said, oh, you're a sicko, aren't you? From then on, then he handed me a little priest. And it looked like, you know, it was 12 or 15 pages. And I said, what is this, the phone book? And he said, no. And, and then he played it for me. And I was hysterical. And then he said, it gets better. At what point did you meet Angela Lansbury, or had you known her before? I had met her before, yeah. And she was obviously, they had chosen her to do it. So, first day rehearsal, we had met uh, doing a, a concert. I think it was for Steve's 38th birthday or something like that. And that's when we met. But uh, we had no, you know, other than that, it was just first day rehearsal. Hi. How are you? We're going to do this, aren't we? Are we? And we had a great deal of fun doing it. And I think the thing that we were most proud of is that we never went too far with it. We never went into, we never went over the top. Because it's, you know, you could easily do that with this kind of piece. And uh, we consciously said we've got to be careful not to go over the top. After that, there were a couple of other shows, but you began getting in more into television and film. How did you get involved so heavily in film and television? I won the Tony Award, remember, so that gives you some cachet, even in the film business. And your agents and your managers say, you know, the, you can make more money doing television and film than you can on the stage. So that is not a bad thing when you're looking at the bottom line and you're getting a little older and life's showing you what it's really like. Did you move to Hollywood or? No. No, you just flew no. out there for the show. Just went, yeah, I used to go every year for uh, pilot season, but I, I couldn't get arrested. In the early 70s, 70 to the late 70s and the early 80s, and I couldn't get arrested out there. So I said, I'm going to have a theater career. But then it picked up. Yeah. I did quite a few television films, and uh, and then Angela, after after we had done Sweeney Todd, she did Murder, She Wrote. In its first year, she just said to the producers, listen, if we're going to make this work, we've got to use actors of vintage. And she said, most of them are in New York. And she said, let's, you know, let's 
put our money where our mouth is and, and, and get good actors to do these things. So I did one of those as the same character, Michael Haggerty. I did one, one show a year for nine years. How long did one of those shows take to film? A week? Yeah. They were an hour, so the, that's pretty much, it's usually seven or eight days. Uh, Blue Bloods is eight days. We're on an eight-day schedule. It's really only 48 minutes of screen time. I have the ads for the other 12. But you need that much time, at least, to, to do it properly. Well, Blue Bloods has now been, you said, eight years. How many, yeah. how many months do you have to be in Hollywood to do that? or is it We done? don't do it in Hollywood. What are you doing? Film in, in New York. In New York. Oh, yeah, it's about New York. In Brooklyn, the Broadway stages, ironically enough. Tom Selleck, who plays one of the leading roles, said, if we're going to do a television show about New York, you got to do it in New York. You don't do it in California or Toronto, where we, where we had gone to make uh, the pilot. He said, nothing's going to double for New York. So he commutes from California to New York. You live in New York now? I have, always have, yeah. So for you, it's easy. Can you do a play while you're doing that? I did, Broadway and the Bard. It's an eight-day schedule. I work one day, maybe two. In Brotherhood, you played a pretty nasty guy. And I looked at the list, and you play, you've played a number of villains over the years. <laughs> I mean, a, a friend of mine is an actor, and he loves playing villains. How do you feel about that? Oh, yeah, sure. They're great fun. Sweeney was somewhat of a villain. Uh, Iago is a villain. Are those more fun for you than playing like a hero? Maybe. Not necessarily, though. Because you have to approach them all as being your best friend. And you have to find a way to connect to them organically, even when you're playing the straight guy and the, and the, and the hero. In something like Brotherhood, how do you do that? I mean, he was a real bastard. Well, be a real bastard. Think like a real bastard. And, Sweeney, you think like a murderer. <laughs> no, you, hey, listen, this guy, Judge Turpin, got rid of him. And he's just getting revenge. That's right. When I go back to that, it's such a brilliant role. How hard was it to get yourself ready for a role like Sweeney Todd? No, I had just done Lear, so it was a piece of cake. You know, once you learn the music and get it into your voice, it's... Um, not as difficult as it would seem. Len Carrier, you're doing this show and you're doing Blue Bloods. Do you have any other projects in the work and any film coming up? Yeah, I'm in the new, uh, I think it's called Bumblebee. It's one of the Transformers spinoffs. I'm in a couple of scenes there in that film. I have a film that I want to make called Don't Go Gentle, which is based on a play by Stephen Belber. And I hopefully I'm going to do a new play by George Eastman called Harry Townsend's Last Stand this fall in New York off-Broadway. It's a two-hander, father-son relationship. A really, really good play. I can't say they're going to happen, but they're in the works. And meanwhile, you're still on Blue Bloods. Yep, starting at the end of July. And Broadway in the Bard, it played in New York two years ago. Now it's in Walnut Creek. Is there a future to it? This is something that I wanted to create so that I could have it available and do it whenever I wished to do it. 
I mean, it's not that simple, but it is something that is in my in my voice, in my body. It's something that I can do, you know, with a few weeks' notice. Somebody says, can you come and do it next month? And if I'm not tied up with the television show, it's a, there's a good chance that I could say, yeah, I think I, I can work that out. Broadway and the Bard is at the Lesher Arts Center in Walnut Creek. For more information, you go to lesherartscenter.org. And Blue Bloods is on CBS. You can find many other Len Cario roles up and down the line, including Spotlight, which won the Oscar for Best Picture a couple of years ago. And you can listen to other interviews, either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>